Hello and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, January 26, 2023. My name is Ben Stein, and I am your reader. So we will begin this morning with our top headlines. Um, here we go. Russian attacks on Ukraine reported. Tank training to start. Ukrainian officials say Russia has launched a wave of missile and self-exploding drone attacks on the country. Air raid sirens wailed nationwide Thursday morning. There were no immediate reports of the targets, but Kiev's mayor said a Russian missile strike killed one person, the first death from an attack in the capital since New Year's Eve. Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said two other people were injured in the strike. The attacks came after Germany and the United States announced they would send advanced battle tanks to Ukraine. Germany's defense minister said Ukrainian troops will start their training on martyr infantry fighting vehicles within days, and then the heavy Leopard 2 tanks Germany promised a little later. Donald Trump to be allowed back on Facebook after a two-year ban. Facebook parent Meta says it will restore former President Donald Trump's personal account in the coming weeks ending a two-year suspension it imposed in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. The company said in a blog post Wednesday it is adding new guardrails to ensure there are no repeat offenders who violate its rules. Trump was suspended on January 7th, a day after the deadly 2021 insurrection. Other social media companies also kicked him off their platforms, though he was recently reinstated on Twitter, Twitter after Elon Musk took over the company. Responding to the news... Trump blasted Facebook's original decision to suspend his account and praised Truth Social, the site he created after being blocked from Twitter. Senators, officials blocking access to mishandled documents. Members of the Senate Intelligence Committee say they should have access to classified documents that were discovered in the homes of President Joe Biden, former President Donald Trump, and former Vice President Mike Pence. The senators say Biden's administration is stonewalling them over the matter. They reacted with swift bipartisan anger Wednesday after a classified meeting with National Intelligence Director Avril Haines, insisting they need to see for themselves what documents the three men were holding. Members of Congress have sought access to the materials or at least a risk assessment detailing what was within them. Sheriff, gunmen didn't know Monterey Park Dance Hall victims. Authorities say the 72-year-old gunman who sprayed bullets into a Southern California ballroom dance hall, killing 11 people, had no connection, had no known connection with the victims and investigators are still trying to determine a motive for the massacre. The Los Angeles County Sheriff says Hu Contran fired 42 shots into the Star Ballroom Dance Studio in Monterey Park on Saturday night using an unregistered gun he bought in 1999. Sheriff Robert Luna says Tran used another registered handgun to kill himself in a van as police closed in. A rifle also was found at his home in Hemet. Authorities say Tran, a Hong Kong immigrant, had not been to the ballroom in at least five years and did not have any connection with his victims. A farm worker accused of killing seven people in shootings at two Northern California mushroom farms has been charged with seven counts of murder. Prosecutors filed the charges Wednesday. A court appearance for 66-year-old Chun-Li Zhao was postponed until February 16th. His two attorneys did not immediately respond to calls and emails seeking comment. Authorities say he killed four people at a mushroom farm in Half Moon Bay 
where he worked, and three more at a nearby farm where he used to work. The charges include allegations that could result in the death penalty or life in prison without parole. Officials say a 32-year-old mother in Massachusetts is expected to be charged in the killing of her two children and the injuring of her infant son. Authorities arrived at a house in Duxbury on Tuesday night after receiving reports of a woman jumping out of a window. They found her and the children unconscious with obvious signs of trauma. Plymouth District Attorney Timothy Cruz says the mother, Lindsay Clancy, remains hospitalized and will be arraigned on homicide charges after she is released. He says it appears the children were strangled. Police and firefighters responded to the home after getting a 911 call from a male resident who reported the woman jumped out the window. Footage of the attack on former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband will be released publicly. A California judge ruled on Wednesday there was no reason to keep the footage secret. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office had played the footage in open court during a hearing last month. The District Attorney's Office argued releasing the footage would allow people to manipulate it and spread false information about the high-profile attack. A host of news agencies objected, including the Associated Press. They argued the public has a right to see the evidence in the high-profile case. An attorney says a Virginia teacher who was shot by a six-year-old student during class plans to sue the school district. Diane Toscano, a lawyer for the 25-year-old teacher, Abigail Zwerner, said Wednesday that on the day of the shooting, concerned teachers and employees warned administrators three times that the boy had a gun on him and was threatening other students, but the administration could not be bothered. The boy shot Zwerner on January the 6th as she taught class at Richneck Elementary School in Newport News. Later in the day, the school board voted to relive, relieve District Superintendent George Parker III of his duties effective February the 1st as part of a separation agreement and severance package. Palestinian officials say Israeli forces have killed at least nine Palestinians, including a 60-year-old woman, and wounded several others during a raid in a flashpoint area of the occupied West Bank. It was the deadliest day in years in the territory. A gun battle broke out when the Israeli military conducted a rare daytime operation in the Jenin refugee camp that it said was meant to prevent an imminent attack against Israelis. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant group has a major foothold in the camp. It has been a focus of nearly a year of Israeli arrest raids. At least one of the dead was identified by Palestinians as a militant, but it was not clear how many others were affiliated with armed groups. Novak Djokovic will face Tommy Paul in the Australian Open men's semifinals. The other semifinal Friday is between Stefanos Tsitsipas and Karen Kashinov. Djokovic is on a 26-match winning streak at Melbourne Park and has been particularly dominant in recent contests. He has won his past 11 sets and dropped only 27 games in that span. He is seeking a 10th Australian Open title and 22nd Grand Slam championship overall. He's also combined a combined 18-0 in the semifinals and finals in Melbourne. Paul is participating in his first major semifinal. Shitsipas was the runner-up to Djokovic in the 2021 French Open. Kashinov has never reached a slam final. With that, we'll go to some local news. Garner Hayfield Ventura taking a unique approach to teaching kids with trauma. From Kaylee Sherman of the Globe Gazette. The Garner Hayfield Ventura School District staff is reevaluating its teaching strategies through a Teach to Heal training program to better serve all students. Quote, our current system 
how we've done things before is not designed to teach all kids. Sean Miller, GHV High School principal, said it's designed to teach the typical kid. Statistics show that 25 to 30 percent on average have had some form of trauma. So if we're only meeting the needs of 70 to 75 percent of our kids, that's not good enough. According to childwelfare.gov, some effects of trauma on children include the inability to control physical responses, uh, difficulty thinking, learning and concentrating, lack of impulse control, and fighting aggression and running away. Due to these challenges, children with trauma require different teaching styles to succeed. And in December, six GVH school staff members set off to the Teach to Heal training to obtain these skills. Miller, middle school principal Deborah Steenhard, second time training attendee and middle school counselor Stan Newton, and the district's at-risk teacher include Mary Fisk. Stacy Heitland and Jill Mitchell attended the first two days of training. The final day will be February the 6th. It was honestly probably one of the best professional development trainings I've ever attended, Newton said. The first training day covered typical behaviors that students with trauma exhibited and how the schools can shift their teaching styles. The second day covered how the language educators use can be triggering for those students as they may have different meanings to them. The staff learned how to improve their vocabulary and better communicate with children. One way of doing that is by providing information in short segments divided by pauses to help students better comprehend the information. Another strategy is to be more specific. Instead of using the word chaotic, a common trigger word, a teacher might describe what they see and hear in the classroom before giving directions. However, body language and facial expressions can also trigger a child with trauma. Kids who have experienced trauma are very in tune and observant, said Newton. When a student walks into your room and sees you in the morning, they can probably tell pretty quickly what kind of mood and tone you are setting just through the facial expressions. Miller believes schools need to shift from compliant teaching to nurturing methods with high expectations. Explaining the compliance and punishment do little to prevent future behavioral problems. We still have high expectations for students, behaviors, and their learning, but it's coming from a different standpoint. It's kind of a philosophical shift and making it more about nurturing and helping teach those skills, Miller explained. The individuals who attended the training have been brainstorming ways to present the information to the rest of the district's staff during their next professional development day. Along with helping transform their mindsets, the team hopes to teach staff techniques to help students be productive with their negative emotions. The good news is that this way of thinking, educating and interacting with the kids, is good for all kids, Miller said. So we're not just honing in on 25 to 30 percent. This way of thinking, learning and teaching is beneficial to everybody. We're really making it inclusive and doing what's best for all kids. Uh, from there, we'll go on to another article here. Local educators weigh in on the education bill from Matthew Razab of the Globe Gazette. Mason City's Catholic school system is ready and willing to take on more students after Governor Kim Reynolds signed her school choice bill into law Tuesday. But public school officials are worried about what the bill means for funding in the future. Over the next three years, the bill will eventually offer all Iowa families education savings accounts of up to $7,598, the amount the state spends per pupil on public K-12 education for private school costs. Families can use any money left over after tuition for other educational expenses, such as textbooks, standardized testing fees, or tutoring. 
The plan also provides new funding for public districts, estimated at just more than $1,200 per student for students who live in the district but attend private schools. The legislation will take effect in the 2023-24 school year. Money will be offered to all public school students and incoming kindergartners, along with private school students whose families make 300% or less of the federal poverty level. That will expand for families making 400% of the federal poverty level the following year. In its third year, all K-12 students would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. By its fourth year, the program is expected to cost $345 million per year, according to estimates by the Legislative Services Agency. There are 33,692 Iowa students enrolled in private schools for the 22-23 school year, according to State Education Department. The LSA predicts that by 2027, 41,687 students will receive state funding for private education. Newman Catholic Administrator Tony Adams said the bill is generally a good thing for private schools and students. I think it's definitely positive for families because they now have the choice in how they best use their educational dollars, Adams said. He said Newman schools enroll about 580 students but could handle about 100 more without expanding facilities. Adams said staffing issues would depend on the grade level distribution for those students. For example, if each grade gained five new students, staffing levels would likely remain the same. But if a particular grade gained 20 students, a new teacher could be needed. Adams said most parents he has spoken with haven't told him if they are for or against the program, but are more so curious about what's in the bill. I think more it's just questions, he said. More about the program itself. It happened pretty quick. The governor just spoke about a week ago, and now we're seeing the bill pass. I think everyone is just trying to get a handle on it. Mason City School District Superintendent Pat Hamilton said he has concerns about the bill. The cost of the bill added to last year's tax cut, which most economists believe will reduce the state budget by almost $2 billion, worries me, he said, what funding will be left for public education. Hamilton said 92% of students in Iowa attend public schools currently, and while the state has been running record surpluses over the past decade, the average increase in state funding for public schools was just 2%. He noted public education affects everyone in a community regardless of whether they have children in school. Education is a value-added commodity that helps drive a community's and region's economic vitality, Hamilton said. Students who graduate from area public schools and stay in the area will live and contribute to our community's economic and social footprint. Hampton said he thinks it is concerning to see taxpayer money funneled to private schools because they are not required to follow the same rules as public schools. While we welcome competition, we believe that all schools that receive taxpayer dollars should meet the same standards of openness and transparency, he said. Even though the state will subsidize them, private schools will not be required to hold meetings in public, publish student achievement scores, or serve all students who enroll. They will be able to pick and choose which children they educate and which children they turn away. Hamilton said parents and teachers he's spoken with are concerned about public school funding moving forward. They, like the parents and staff Adams has spoken with, are looking for answers. The state of Iowa has a long history of solid support from parents, students, and communities for public education, Hamilton said. Will that still be the case moving forward? Our next article from Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. 
$1 million cap on medical malpractice awards being considered in Iowa. From Des Moines, cash awards for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications from medical malpractice lawsuits would be capped at $1 million under legislation being considered by state lawmakers. The proposal has been floating around the Iowa Capitol for multiple years, but this year Governor Kim Reynolds highlighted the proposal in her annual condition of the state address earlier this month. This is the year that we must enact common sense tort reform to stop the out-of-control verdicts that are driving our OBGYN clinics out of business and medical school graduates out of state, Reynolds said during the address. One hospital administrator said that it's gotten so bad, he's often asked about Iowa's large jury verdicts during recruiting trips. Two years ago, that had never happened. The legal environment is changing, and our laws need to keep up. Iowa is one of 11 states that does not have a cap on non-economic damages in medical malpractice states, according to a 2020 report from New York Law School's Center for Justice and Democracy. Other states' caps on non-economic damages range between $250,000 and roughly $800,000. Of the states that share a border with Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Missouri have caps on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases, while Minnesota and Illinois do not. The proposed legislation in Iowa would cap non-economic damages at a million dollars, but would not cap economic damages. A legislative hearing on the proposal Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol drew much attention from state house lobbyists and advocacy groups. Speakers representing the medical community said the legislation is needed because without the cap, Physicians are hesitant to work in Iowa, and it becomes difficult for hospitals and clinics to recruit and retain doctors. And they said without a cap, the cost of insurance can rise high enough to drive hospitals or clinics to close, especially smaller ones in rural areas. Representatives of the medical community pointed in particular to two judgments from 2022, a $97.4 million award to a family whose newborn suffered permanent brain damage when its head was crushed due to healthcare providers using improper procedures during delivery, and a $27 million award to a man whose case of bacterial meningitis was misdiagnosed as the flu. Physicians don't want to come into a state where liability is so volatile, said Sandra Conlin, a lobbyist for the Iowa Hospital Association. Michaela Brockmeyer, a third-year medical student at Des Moines University, said many of her classmates, even those who are Iowa natives, tell her they would like to remain in the state and practice, but plan to leave Iowa upon graduation. Just 22% of the undergraduate-level medical school graduates remained in Iowa in 2020, which was the seventh worst rate in the country, according to the most recent annual report from the Association of American Medical Colleges. This is something to retain the physicians of Iowa for years and years to come, Brockmeyer said during the legislative hearing. Those opposed to the legislation largely represented lawyers and advocacy groups. They argued the state should not put an arbitrary limit on financial rewards to Iowans who are severely injured during medical procedures. The speakers who opposed the bill included Sam Clovis, a former Republican candidate for U.S. Senate, who has filed a lawsuit that claims medical negligence resulted in his becoming paralyzed from the chest down and confined to a wheelchair and Chip Baltimore a lawyer, lobbyist, and former Republican state lawmaker who chaired the House's Judiciary Committee. Tom Slater, a lawyer from West Des Moines who specializes in medical malpractice and personal injury, 
said he views the proposal as further whittling away patients' rights. I've heard a lot of talk in here on the other side about doctors and hospital and cost of insurance system cost. Where's the talk in favor of the patient? Slater said, the bill puts the finishing touches on not just curtailing patients' rights, but eliminating them. The two Republicans on a three-person legislative panel, Senators Jason Schultz of Schleswig and Michael Busalt, Busalot of Ankeny, moved to advance the bill. Senate Study Bill 1063, and later Wednesday, it passed through the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Nate Bolton, Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer, declined to sign off on the bill in the subcommittee. Mason City man pleads guilty of stealing an SUV. A Mason City man who was accused of stealing an SUV in October has pleaded guilty in Cerro Gordo County District Court. According to court records, 31-year-old Oliver J. Morehouse pleaded guilty to first-degree theft last week. First-degree theft is Class C felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Prosecutors are recommending Morehouse's 10-year sentence be suspended and he be placed on probation for up to five years. The affidavit states that Morehouse stole a silver 2014 Dodge Journey SUV around 5.15 a.m. on October 15, 2022, on East State Street. The report does not specify how or where Morehouse was arrested. He was booked into the Cerro Gordo County Jail at 7.41 the same day. Morehouse has two prior theft convictions and a pending case on his record. He has been sentenced to 60 days in jail after stealing alcohol from Casey's General Store, located on 12th Street Northeast in Mason City last October. A concurrent sentence will be served for stealing a pair of boots from Walmart that same month. An unauthorized use of a credit card charge is pending after Morehouse allegedly used a stolen card to attempt to extract money from the ATM machines at Hy-Vee East in Mason City last September. His attempts failed. The court is under no obligation to follow the sentencing recommendation. Dog accidentally shoots, kills Kansas hunter by stepping on gun in pickup truck from Wellington, Kansas. A hunter was killed after a dog in the back seat of a pickup truck stepped on a gun, causing it to accidentally discharge and shoot the hunter in the back. The hunter, identified as Austin Smith, 30 of Wichita, died at the scene Saturday morning. Emergency response personnel tried CPR and other life-saving measures on him, according to media reports. A canine belonging to the owner of the pickup stepped on the rifle, causing the weapon to discharge, the Sumner County Sheriff's Office told ABC affiliate KAKE Television. The fired round struck the passenger who died of his injuries on scene. The owner of the truck and dog was not identified. Sumner County, with about 22,000 residents, is in south-central Kansas, south of Wichita. The freak accident is by no means unique. Several other notable canine-related gun incidents have occurred in recent years, CBS News said. A 32-year-old new dad and Turkish hunter, Osgor Gevrikoglu, was shot and killed in November 2022 when he was putting his dog into the backseat of his truck, CBS said, citing the newspaper Middle East Eye. The dog's paw touched the loaded shotgun. A pheasant hunter in north-central Iowa was accidentally shot and wounded in 2017 when a dog stepped on the shotgun trigger guard and the gun fired. A conservation officer for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources said four hunters and two dogs were looking for the game birds when one of the hunters placed a loaded shotgun on the ground. A New Mexico man told CBS affiliate KRQE-TV that he was shot by his 120-pound Rottweiler mix named Charlie. Like the Kansas incident, the man was sitting in his truck with his rifle in the back seat. 
The gun fired when the dog's paw got caught in the trigger, sending a bullet through the driver's seat and breaking a few ribs and shattering his collarbone after hitting him in the back. An analysis of the Washington Post in 2015 found there were at least 10 cases of dogs shooting people between 2004 and 2015. Half were labeled as hunting accidents. 40% occurred in vehicles. A lawsuit claims Fireball cinnamon mini bottles contain no whiskey, company using deceptive labeling. From Darren Dalton, Fireball cinnamon has been sued over purposefully misleading packaging, according to reports. Class action lawsuit filed in Cook County, Illinois, alleges the makers of the whiskey have been slapping deceptive labeling on its mini bottles. Plaintiff Anna Marquez filed the lawsuit in the United States District Court, Northern District of Illinois, on January 27th, according to Today. Her lawyers provided photos of Fireball Cinnamon and Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey in comparison. They allege the bottles of Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey and Fireball Cinnamon are pretty much indistinguishable, the news outlet reported. The lawsuit also breaks the usage of certain phasing on the bottles, Dulles reported. Using the words with natural whiskey and other flavors is a clever turn of phrase because consumers who strain to read this will not see how it natural whiskey is to string from other flavors, the lawsuit claimed. They will think the product is a malt beverage with added natural whiskey and other flavors. What the label means to say natural whiskey flavors and other flavors but by not including the word flavors after natural whiskey, purchasers who look closely will expect that a distilled spirit of whiskey was added as a separate ingredient. The lawsuit continues. Donald Trump to be allowed back on Facebook after a two-year ban. Facebook parent Meta says it will restore former President Donald Trump's personal account in the coming weeks, ending a two-year suspension it imposed in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. Facebook parent Meta said Wednesday it will restore former President Donald Trump's personal account. The company said in a blog post it is adding new guardrails to ensure there are no repeat offenders who violate its rules, even if they are political candidates or world leaders. The public should be able to hear what their politicians are saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that they can make informed choices at the ballot box, wrote Nick Clegg, Meta's vice president of global affairs. Clegg added that when there is a clear risk to real-world harm, Meta will intervene. In the event that Mr. Trump posts further violating content, the content will be removed and he will be suspended for between one month and two years, depending on the severity of the violation, he wrote. Facebook suspended Trump on January 7, 2021, for praising people engaged in violent acts at the Capitol a day earlier. But the company had resisted earlier calls, including from its own employees, to remove Trump's account. Meta said Trump's account will be restored in the coming weeks on both Facebook and Instagram. Banned from mainstream social media, Trump has been relying on Truth Social, which he launched after being blocked from Twitter. Facebook is not the only world's largest social media site, but had been a crucial source of fundraising revenue for Trump's campaigns, which spent millions of dollars on the company's ads in 2016 and 2020. The move, which comes as Trump is ramping up his third run for the White House, will not only Trump allow Trump to communicate directly with his 34 million followers, dramatically more than the 4.8 million who currently follow him on Truth Social, but will also allow him to resume direct fundraising. During the suspension, his supporters were able to raise money for him, but couldn't run ads directly from him or in his voice. 
Responding to the news, Trump blasted Facebook's original decision to suspend his account as he praised Truth Social. Facebook, which has lost billions of dollars in value since deplatforming your favorite president, me, has just announced that they are reinstating my account. Such a thing should never again happen to a sitting president or anybody else who is not deserving of retribution, he wrote. Other social media companies, including Snapchat, where he remained suspended, also kicked him off their platforms following the insurrection. He was recently reinstated on Twitter after Elon Musk took over the company. He has not tweeted yet. Civil rights groups and others on the left were quick to denounce Meta's move. Letting Trump back on Facebook sends a signal to other figures with large online audiences that they may break the rules without lasting consequences said Heidi Birich, founder of the Global Projects Against Hate and Extremism and a member of a group called the Real Facebook Oversight Board that has criticized the platform's efforts. I am not surprised, but it is a disaster, Birich said of Meta's decision. Facebook created loopholes for Trump that he went right through. He incited an insurrection on Facebook, and now he's back. With that, we'll go ahead and move to our obituaries. We'll go ahead and begin with Evelyn Gore. Evelyn LaVon Mellum Gore died January 17th, 2023 in Mason City. Services will be held January 28th at First Lutheran Church of Glenville, Minnesota at 10 a.m. Evelyn is survived by two sons, Matthew Dean, John Joseph Gore, and seven grandchildren. Evelyn was preceded in death by her husband, Claude, parents, four brothers, and four sisters. Walter, Lloyd, Lawrence, Elmer, Magel, Belula, Edna, and Ruth. Our next obituary is coming up. Here we go. Um, Riley Alexander Sharper met Jesus on January 13th at the age of 28. He was born to Kevin and Jill Sharper on February 5th, 1994 in Mason City. Riley was an incredible son, brother, husband, father, and friend. He treasured his wife, daughter, and family more than anything in this world. He had an impressive baseball card collection that he took extreme pride in. Riley enjoyed spending his summers at Principal Park and Target Field, accumulating a numerous amount of baseball card autographs. He was a devout Green Bay Packer and Minnesota Twins fan. He could rattle off any player, team, or statistic in the MLB and NFL with ease. Riley loved attending musicals and shows at the Des Moines Civic Center with his wife, Caitlin. These shows were their monthly date nights and something they enjoyed immensely together. Riley had an incredible voice and a gift of harmonizing with any song. He used his gifts to lead worship at his church. He could light up any dance floor with his both incredible and hilarious dance moves. Riley loved traveling from a very young age with his family. He was able to visit all 30 states and numerous national parks. Riley shared incredible traveling experiences with his wife and shared his love of traveling with her, including hiking in the infamous Angels Landing in Zion National Park in 2020. Michael Smith, 71 of Mason City, passed away Sunday, January 22nd at the Muse Norris Hospice inpatient unit in Mason City with his family by his side. A funeral service will be held 11 a.m. Thursday, January 26th at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street Northeast, Mason City. Burial will follow in Elmwood, St. Joseph Cemetery. Military honors will be provided by the Mason City Veterans Honor Guard. Visitation will be held Wednesday, January 25th from 5 p.m. until 7 p.m. 
and will resume one hour prior to Mike's service at the funeral home on Thursday. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126th Street, Northeast Mason City. Phone number 641-423-2372. Robert Bob D. Christensen, 82, died Friday, January 20th at Mercy One North Iowa Hospice in Mason City. The funeral service will be held 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 25th at the Bethlehem Lutheran Church, 419 North Delaware Avenue in Mason City, with Rufford Sean Smith officiating. Interment will be held at a later date at Memorial Park Cemetery, Mason City. A viewing will be held Tuesday, January 24th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue, North Clear Lake. John Frederick Dietz, 76 of Mason City, passed away January 19th. Funeral service will be held 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th at First United Methodist Church, 119 South Georgia Avenue in Mason City, with Reverend Carol Cress officiating. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Monday, January 23rd at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street Northeast, Mason City, as well as one hour prior, prior to funeral service on Tuesday. Robert Bob John Hamilton of Savage, Minnesota, passed away suddenly on January 15th at age 65 from a ruptured aortic aneurysm. He was preceded in death by his parents, John Richard and Joan Clara Hamilton. Bob grew up and went to high school in Epworth, Iowa before attending the University of Northern Iowa, a school he titled the Harvard of the Midwest. It was during his time at UNI that he met his future wife, Carmen Blake. They married on September 20th, 1980 in Mason City. They first met in tax class that prospered for 42 years and blessed them with two daughters, Caitlin and Claire. After working in public accounting, Bob became the chief financial officer at Fredrickson, the largest law firm in the Twin Cities, where he continued to work for over 30 years. His career culminated in his appointment as the firm's chief operating officer, a role he served with dedication until his final day. He often remarked he had the best team and thoroughly enjoyed working alongside colleagues who became family. Bob made an incredible mark on the firm and leaves behind a legacy of collaboration, integrity, and stewardship. While he was accomplished in his professional life, he was most proud of his role as a dedicated husband, father, and grandfather. Caitlin and Claire have always said they won the parent lottery and are beyond thankful to have had Bob as their role model, best friend, and biggest fan. He never missed a single event over the many years of his daughter's collective sports involvement and school activities. Bob was a steady, calming force to all who knew him. He was smart, kind, humble, loyal, witty, and confident. We will miss his dry humor, sound advice, and his role as our personal GPS. Bob is survived by his wife, Carmen, daughters, Caitlin Freakland and Claire Palmquist, grandchildren, sisters-in-law, and many beloved nieces and nephews. Visitation will occur on Monday, January 23rd from 4 to 7 at Washburn McGravy Funeral Home, 7625 Mitchell Road in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. The funeral service will be held on Tuesday, January 24th at 11 a.m. at St. Andrew's Lutheran Church. And our final obituary for today, John Mac McCorkle, age 67 of Mason City, peacefully passed on, on Tuesday, January 17th at Mercy One Hospice of North Iowa, surrounded by family. Visitation will be held from 2 to 4, Sunday, January 22nd, at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel. John's Celebration of Life service will be held at 2 p.m. Monday, January 23rd, at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel. 
John was born on August 17, 1955 at Mercy Hospital in Mason City and remained a resident of Mason City for the remainder of his life. John met Donna Mae Manson at the Clearview Roller Rink in 1969 and proceeded to spend the rest of their life together, marrying in 1974. John worked at Wooz's full-service gas station for his entire adult life. He was known for whistling tunes and providing smiles and laughter to his dedicated customers. The Globe Gazette did a feature story on John in 2012 detailing his many years of service and positive attitude at Wooz's. John enjoyed roller skating, bowling, and traveling over the years, particularly to Florida and Walt Disney World. John loved Christmas and for years could be seen on Christmas morning wearing a Santa Claus suit outside their home on Highway 122, waving at passers-by. Above all else, John loved and was most proud of his family, attending all events and activities and providing the means for participation to his two daughters and son. He was a lifelong Mason City Mohawk and Hawkeye fan. Left to cherish his memory are his wife Donna, daughter Chris Penka of Pensa, of Flagstaff, daughter Mary Witt of West of sorry of Des Moines, son Nick McCorkle of Mason City. John is preceded in death by his parents Hermit and Louisa McCorkle. With that, we'll go ahead and we'll move to some sports. And in the sports area, I think we'll start off with bowling. High school bowling, Charles City Gherkin, a master at lefty, righty, bowling. In Waterloo, Charles City junior Claire Gherkin has earned a name for herself as the top bowler on the Comets roster. Her performance in the North Central Bowling Conference Tournament Wednesday at Cadillac Lane cemented her standing as the Comets' go-to bowler. Bowling is the anchor position. Her two strikes in the final frame helped lift Charles City past North Fayette Valley and Decorah. The feat made more impressive by the challenges she faced early in the season. In the summer, Gherkin injured her right shoulder playing softball. With bowling season around the corner, she had to adapt if she wanted to play. That meant learning to bowl left-handed. However, the process was more complicated than simply rolling the ball with her other arm. Learning to bowl left-handed meant Gherkin had to relearn her steps and body movements going into the throw. It got a little confusing, Gherkin said. So when I was still practicing a little bit right-handed, but bowling meets and competing left-handed, it was more of like, oh, what foot do I step with? Do I slide with? Where are my shoulders at? And just thinking a lot of about that. Gherkin bowled as a lefty for the first two months, averaging 140 per game at first. It was a step back from the typical 177.4 she bowled as a sophomore. According to head coach Doug Bolin, she barely qualified for varsity in her first outing as a softball, but her knowledge of the game saw her through, a byproduct of her father and fellow bowler, Scott. I bowl with her dad, and he and I talk about bowling a lot, and he's very knowledgeable of the game, Bolin said. Claire understands oil patterns and ball surfaces. Left-handed her, left-handed her last two or three meets, I don't think she ever missed the head pin. And to do that with your offhand is pretty amazing. By the time Gherkin was cleared to bowl right-handed again, she was back to being Charles City top scorer. On her first game back after getting the go-ahead from doctors, she bowled 200-plus game against Tripoli. Meanwhile, her resilience caught the attention of her teammates. They say that if someone, a teammate, can bowl with her other hand, then maybe we ought to pick our game up a little bit with our normal hand, Bolin said. As for Gherkin, 
while she's done with her left hand, the lessons she picked up in the lanes will stay with her for years to come. I've learned determination sticking with it, Gherkin said, and understanding and giving myself grace that I am left-handed and not to be so hard on myself for that part of it. Alongside Charles City's first place showing, the boys also played well on Wednesday, placing third behind North Fayette Valley and Decorah. We had frames where it didn't go well for us, or we threw a bad ball, or this or that, said Brian Bullen, who ever saw coaching for the girls during the tournament. But they did a nice job of handling the pressure, and we just stayed to stay calm all day and think about their next shot and not the shot before that, and they did a really nice job of staying positive and not letting pressure get to them. Mike Bianchi, honoring fallen soldiers through kids, assist from Jack Nicholas. From Mike Bianchi of the Orlando Sentinel, what a refreshing respite this day has been, a much needed reprieve from covering the new name, image, and likeness world of Power 5 football, where we have been trained to believe that the value of a college scholarship means virtually nothing. Don't you dare spew this nonsense to the recipients of the scholarships awarded by Folds of Honor, educational grants that go to the children and spouses of military members and first responders who have died or been disabled in the line of duty. Don't tell it to Jurli Turian, whose husband, Marine Master Sergeant Aaron Turian, died in Afghanistan nine years ago. Their three kids, Elijah, Laura Bella, and Avery, have all been given the gift of a quality education with the help of financial aid scholarships provided by Folds of Honor. It's been amazing, Jurley says. I work full-time as a nurse, but there's no way financially I could give three kids the quality education they are receiving now because of the scholarships. I'm so thankful. I'm thankful too. I'm thankful that sometimes in this job, I get a chance to interview people who are truly inspiring. I'm thankful that I got a chance earlier this week to have a conversation with Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dan Rooney, an F-16 fighter pilot who started Folds of Honor 17 years ago after he was emotionally moved on a commercial flight home from his second tour of duty in Iraq. As the flight landed, the pilot announced that the plane was carrying the remains of Corporal Brock Buckland on board. Rooney watched sadly as Corporal Buckland's identical twin brother walked stone-draped casket to meet his family on the tarmac. Among the family family members was Corporal Buckland's four-year-old son, Jacob. I've seen a lot of terrible things as a fighter pilot in combat, but one thing you never really see is the fallen soldier's family, Rooney recalls. I think I speak for every veteran and every first responder who is running toward trouble when I say that our greatest fear is if something happens to us, what happens to our family? That feeling is ubiquitous among those who serve. That night, as he looked out the window onto the airport tarmac and saw a four-year-old boy who would grow up without his father, that's the night that Lieutenant Colonel Rooney decided his mission in life was to help the families of fallen heroes. That night is when the idea of Folds of Honor was born with a mission statement that would come later, honor their sacrifice, educate their legacy. For Rooney, the best way to fulfill the mission was through his passion for golf. Rooney was a college golfer at the University of Kansas, who grew up on a public golf course his parents owned in Grand Haven, Michigan. Rooney once told his father, when I grow up, I want to be a fighter pilot and a professional golfer. He did even better. He became a fighter pilot and a professional guardian angel. His first fundraiser for Folds of Honor was a charity golf tournament at his parents' golf course that raised $8,500. 
Since then, Rooney and his Folds of Honor team have doled out 44,000 scholarships worth more than $200 million. In all, 91 cents of every dollar donated goes directly into scholarships, and 46% of those scholarships went to minority recipients last year. Even Rooney's boyhood hero, Jack Nicholas, has gotten involved. Rooney went to Nicholas with a crazy idea that he wanted to turn the family golf course in Michigan into a golf church and a shrine to the American military. Nicholas waived his $3 million fee, redesigned the course, and it reopened as American Dunes. In 2021, Nicholas' words are emblazoned on an eight-foot wall in front of the clubhouse. I love the game of golf, but I love my country even more. Folds of Honor started in Michigan, but now organizes nationwide golf fundraisers like the Hero 100 Tuesday at Orange County National, where golfers from across the country secured pledges, and played a 100-hole golf marathon to raise money for scholarship. Michael Assey, the head pro at Savannah Georgia Country Club, played in the marathon on Tuesday and also hosts a fundraiser at his home course because he says the tears started flowing like never before when he first heard of the Folds of Honor mission. Helping the children of those who give up their lives fighting for our freedom, Assey says, I can't think of a better cause than that. Says Mark Williams, a golf pro in New Bern, North Carolina, who last year played in a 24-hour golf marathon fundraiser in which he completed 360 holes. Playing 360 holes in 24 hours seems crazy. I got rained on a couple of times, but the guys on the front line aren't going to stop for a little rain. You could say this is a golfer's way of going to battle for those who sacrificed so much. Those like Master Sergeant Aaron Torian, who I referred to earlier. He played college football at Tennessee Martin and got his master's degree in education because he wanted to be a teacher and a high school football coach. He had just interviewed for a teaching and coaching job in Florida just as the war in Iraq was beginning. That's when he phoned his girlfriend, Jurlee, from the Marine Corps recruiting office. He told me that when he was on the job interview and he was standing on the football field, he realized he wasn't ready to just be on the sideline, Jurlee remembers. He wanted to be on a team out on the field. That team was the United States Marines, and that field was in the mountains of Afghanistan. He could have joined as an officer because of advanced education, but he enlisted in the infantry because he wanted to be on the front lines. Aaron and Turley got married and had a family, and when he wasn't deployed, he was Mr. Mom. While Turley worked as a nurse, Aaron would take the kids to school and sporting events and playdates and birthday parties. When Turley drove home from work one day, She laughed as she pulled into the driveway and saw Aaron having a glass of wine with the other moms. It was Aaron's sixth combat deployment when Jurley got the awful news. Aaron was on a mountain patrol training Afghan commandos when he noticed one of the commandos was trying to improperly dismantle an explosive device. As Aaron walked down an embankment, he stepped on a landmine and lost his life. Honor their sacrifice, educate their legacy. It started with a flag-covered casket of an unknown soldier all of those years ago and continues today with thousands of scholarships going to the kids of our fallen heroes. Up at the Nicholas-designed American Dunes, a trumpet plays taps over the public address system every day at 1 p.m., 1,300 hours, standard military time. Taps is followed by 13 chimes, representing the 13 times a flag is folded at a military funeral, the Folds of Honor. Quote, I feel I have found the key that will open every door to happiness, Rooney says. If you want to be truly content, give of yourself to help those 
who need it most. We'll move on to an article here about high school wrestling. West Hancock has been sharpened by ironclad schedule. From Brit, a few years ago, West Hancock had wrestling coach Mark Sanger was frustrated. Sanger would take what he considered a talented, salty team to the Iowa State Championships, and by the end of the week, few Eagles got the results they wanted. Now, Sanger is not naive. He understands the state tournament is a far different beast than a regular season tournament. It's full of talented wrestlers. But what Sanger felt tipped the balance in favor of an Eagle opponent when push came to shove at the state tournament wasn't because the West Hancock wrestler wasn't talented enough to win. He wasn't tested enough. We were having issues at the state tournament, Sanger said Tuesday after West Hancock split duels, beating Hampton Dumont Cal 34-32 and falling to Algona 47-25. We were getting beat by guys we'd never seen. As Sanger began to build his 2022-23 wrestling schedule last year, it was that thought that creeped into his mind his team needed much tougher tests in the regular season. That led to scheduling visits to Hudson Invitational two weeks ago, where the Eagles went head-to-head with 1A power Don Bosco of Gilbertville, and then last week to the Herb Irgens Invitational in Ida Grove, where it saw the Dons again, as well as 2A state dual regular Sergeant Bluff Luton, among 20 other unfamiliar opponents. I made the decision we had to go to some different tournaments and see some of those guys we were getting beat by, Sanger said. Some of our younger guys have taken some lumps. And our more experienced guys have thrived, but it was the kind of competition we needed to face, and it's paying off. The Eagles were fifth in the 20-plus team, Herb Ergens, and right now have five wrestlers with 30-plus wins heading into the top of Iowa Conference Championships Saturday in Forest City. I feel good about where we are at, Sanger said. Obviously, there is still work to do. Leading the way for the Eagles is two-time state medalist Kellen Smith, who could hit 150 career wins before season's end. Smith ranked number one at 152, is 34-0, and joining him with 30-plus wins on the Eagles roster at Teague Smith, 35-1 at 120, Creighton Kelly, 35-4 at 170, Kill Zuhl, 32-4 at 182, and David Smith, 32-9 at 220. Smith won his only match Tuesday, first period fall over at Algona's Ian Furr. With that, we're going to uh, close, noting the time, and we'll do the weather. Uh, Today, partly cloudy skies, a few flurries or snow showers possible, high of 11 degrees. Winds west to northwest at 10 to 20 miles an hour. Tonight, cloudy with snow showers, developing after midnight, a low near 5 degrees. Winds south to southwest at 15 to 20 Five miles an hour, chance of snow 60%. Snow accumulations less than one inch, higher wind gusts possible. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy with snow showers around in the morning. Morning high of 32 degrees with temps falling to near 20. Winds west to northwest at 15 to 25 miles an hour. Chance of snow 50%, higher wind gusts possible. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City for today, January 26th. 2023. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With half a dozen measles outbreaks currently underway in the U.S., as well as several serious international outbreaks, the news on measles vaccine from Denmark is important. Researchers conducted a nationwide study that included everyone born between 1999 and 2010. With more than 650,000 children in that group, they had more than 5 million person years of follow-up. The Danish health system keeps excellent records on all of its citizens, including the children. Consequently, the scientists are confident that the 6,517 children diagnosed with autism during the study period are all the children who developed this condition. Children who did not receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, were equally likely as vaccinated children to develop autism. The investigators conclude, the study strongly supports that MMR vaccination does not increase the risk for autism, does not trigger autism in susceptible children, and is not associated with clustering of autism cases after vaccination. The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a completely new type of antidepressant, the nasal spray, called esketamine, is expected to help people who have not responded to standard antidepressants. It will be marketed under the brand name Spravato. This drug is chemically related to the injectable anesthetic ketamine that's been on the market since 1970 and is available generically. Although esketamine is administered as a nasal spray, people will not be permitted to purchase it for home use. They will need to use Spravato under medical supervision at a clinic or doctor's office. Some experts have challenged the FDA's approval process for esketamine. While two clinical trials demonstrated some benefit, two others did not show that esketamine is better than placebo. Side effects of this novel antidepressant include nausea, dizziness, headache, and a feeling of dissociation. FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb unexpectedly announced his departure from the agency this week. Experts were puzzled by his announcement since he has received high marks from the administration, industry, and even some consumer groups. Dr. Gottlieb has raised questions about teen vaping and has been an outspoken critic of pharmacy chains that sell tobacco products to minors. Some commentators speculate that these stances might be related to his abrupt departure. His explanation for the sudden departure is that he wants to spend more time with his wife and young children. Dr. Gottlieb is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Another week, another drug recall. Many lots of ARB blood pressure drugs, including Losartan, Valsartan, and Herbisartan, have been recalled over the past eight months. These medicines were contaminated with potential carcinogens known as NDMA and NDEA. Now, Heterolabs has recalled 87 lots, and Tarrant Pharmaceuticals Limited is recalling 100 lots of Losartan tablets. These pills contain an entirely new contaminant just identified as NMBA. It, too, is a suspected carcinogen. All three of these nitrosamine contaminants are apparently created as a result of the manufacturing process. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb stated, we're making important strides at understanding how these impurities form, and we're continuing to examine if nitrosamine impurities may also arise during the manufacture of other ARB drug products. 
The FDA is committed to implementing measures to prevent the formation of these impurities during drug manufacturing processes in the future. Cocoa flavonoids may have some benefit for people with multiple sclerosis, according to a small study. Previous research showed that dark chocolate rich in cocoa compounds might improve symptoms of chronic fatigue. The investigators recruited 40 people with relapsing remitting MS to drink cocoa every day for six weeks. 19 of them got high flavonoid cocoa, while 21 drank low flavonoid cocoa. At the end of the study, those on the high flavonoid cocoa had slightly less fatigue and could walk somewhat farther in six minutes than they had at the outset. They also reported less pain. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. 